It's a bright sunny day on the ice. There are flags everywhere, lots of smiles. A team of enthusiastic Chinese polar explorers are just getting ready for an expedition. I think the main challenge of the inland exploration is the extreme weather. We often see gales, strong gales, cloud brightening and snow drifting, which threaten the safety of vehicles and people. It's a boom time for Antarctic research. The frozen mass is a buzz of activity. Officially, Antarctica is a protected continent. It's free of resource mining thanks to the Antarctic Treaty System. But there are those who continue to worry about its future. There are no questions asked about which kind of scientific activities get defined as exploration, looking for minerals and, and other resources, and which is just scientific research from the point of view of scientific research. This is Future Tense, I'm Anthony Fennell, and welcome to the first program in our new 2019 series. At the bottom of the globe, the snow-covered wastes of Antarctica are photographed by members of the U.S. expedition probing the ice-cold heart of the world's most hostile continent. They're here to establish scientific observation posts. Seven countries, Argentina, Australia, Chile, France, New Zealand and Britain, unofficially claim territory in Antarctica. But many others, including South Korea, China, Russia and the United States, also have a presence. I think there's always been a competitive edge when you look at the human history of Antarctica. You know, even today, for example, you can still find people arguing about who was the first to cite Antarctica, who was the first to occupy Antarctica, who has the biggest base, who does the most science. None of this is particularly new. Klaus Dodds, Professor of Geopolitics at Royal Holloway, University of London. What I think has changed is two things. I think, first of all, the stakes are bigger now than ever before. Antarctica has become ever more globalised and we're ever more concerned about Antarctica's state of health vis-à-vis planet Earth. But I think the other big shift, uh, even from, say, 50 years ago, was that there are now far more players interested in Antarctica. So when the Antarctic Treaty was signed in 1959, There are only 12 countries, including, of course, Australia. Now we have over 50 countries. And, you know, when you introduce players like India and China, then suddenly, you know, when we talk of global Antarctica, it takes on a very different hue. And what all those countries are up to is an interesting question. Just a few months ago, the New Zealand government warned it was becoming increasingly difficult to monitor the sorts of activities being conducted on the great southern continent. Anne-Marie Brady from the University of Canterbury. Many commentators on Antarctic affairs have raised concerns about transparency. That is a really commonly held view that the Antarctic Treaty System needs more transparency, whether it's the meetings like the annual Antarctic consultative meetings where the media and experts like myself are excluded or you know what's happening in the, the different bases. That, that is actually a, a long-standing criticism of the Antarctic system of governance, that there is not enough transparency and there's not enough oversight and there's not enough accountability. How difficult is it to find out what's going on, what different countries are doing in Antarctica? 
Well, every year countries are required to make a report of their activities in Antarctica through the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research and also another ways in which they're asked to report on their research is the Council of Managers of National Antarctic Programs. But not all of them give the full information. So there's a real variation in what's publicly available. And there's no no way to, to force countries to, to be more transparent and complete all the forms as fully as they should do. What does that mean for the Antarctic Treaty? Well, we always prefer the multilateral arrangements to protect our interests, that we have an equal voice in a, in a multilateral grouping like the Antarctic Treaty system. The alternative is might is right. However, we're coming into an era where it seems the great powers are acting like might is right. So what are the major concerns? The first involves superpower rivalry. China's interest in the South Pole has grown significantly in recent decades. It's now building its fifth research station on the ice, and it's thought to spend more on its Antarctic mission than any other nation. Professor Brady warns of US-China rivalry increasingly impacting on the continent, and she fears the Antarctic is being militarised by stealth. Ground stations in Antarctica for GPS are essential for its accuracy, and the United States set up their ground stations, their GPS ground stations in Antarctica in 1995, and that's the same year that full operational facility for GPS was established. And now China and Russia are rolling out their own GPS equivalents. The Russian's one is called GLONASS and China's one is called Beidou. And both countries calculate that by 2020, if not before, that China's Beidou system is going to have an accuracy on a par or even possibly superior to the US GPS system. Does that mean that Antarctica is likely to be a potential focus for future conflict? Well, it has always had a strategic element to it for the great powers. So the Antarctic Treaty was set up especially to keep out military activities other than for logistics purposes or peaceful purposes, actually, the terms of the treaty. So there's always been that potential and awareness of the potential in Antarctica. But having three of the great powers now using Antarctica for their ground stations for GPS, which is, I should should add, is it's a core military technology as well as being part of civilian life. That really ups the stakes in um, why countries would be interested in Antarctica and also potentially challenges the Antarctic Treaty requirements that activities in Antarctica be purely for peaceful use only because, as I said, that GPS has a is a core military technology. In a time of conflict, the great powers are likely to go for each other's GPS and try and shut them down because it has, because not just the military aspect to it, but also the civilian component to it. This this doesn't affect, it can affect banking and all parts of daily life that require the location capacity of GPS. So this is a tool that we all use in our daily lives, but also it always has a military component to it. It's time for the Longines Chronoscope. 
a television journal of the important issues... As Professor Brady mentioned, Antarctica has long been seen by many powers as strategically significant. And tied to that has always been its perceived economic potential. This interview with American polar explorer Richard Byrd is from the late 1940s. Well, Admiral Byrd, I can understand, I think everybody can, the interest in the North Pole because it's so near our greatest challenger, Soviet Russia. But why this interest in the bottom of the world? I tell you one reason they're interested. It's by far the most valuable, important place left in the world for science. But more important than that, it has to do with the future because it happens to be an untouched reservoir of natural resources. You know, as the world swings with an ever-increasing acceleration, far-flung places, once useless like we thought the North Pole was, and no man's land, become very useful. The date which comes up time and again when talking about the future of Antarctica is 2048. The Madrid Protocol, a part of the Antarctic Treaty System mechanism, currently prohibits mining. That prohibition won't end in 2048, but from that date forward, debate about mining opportunities will once again be permitted if enough countries agree to reopen discussion. The big fear that some environmentalists express is that the current boom in international interest re-Antarctica is all about securing a seat at the table. Put crudely, the bigger your presence on the ice, the stronger your claim to a slice of the pie. Klaus Dodds again. I don't think anything is necessarily inevitable. And I think sometimes 2048 is just a convenient, you know, calendar moment to rehearse debates about what we might do as an international community if one country or one actor decided, or perhaps a group of actors, decided to flagrantly violate the prohibition on mining in Antarctica. So to a certain extent, you could say this is something of a parlour game where we just kind of speculate endlessly about what might happen. But I actually think that speculation is quite useful because I think one of the dangers of the protocol when it entered into force is that people thought, well, now we have Article 7, the prohibition, we've kind of taken it off the table. I don't think mining and resource exploitation has ever been off the table. I think what we've tried to do is to kind of box it in and to say, well, this is an indefinite prohibition. I don't think countries like China see that prohibition as indefinite. And so there's nothing magical about 2048. I mean, it, it could be in 2052 that uh, China says, hey, we need to have a conversation. But it could be another country or actor altogether that we haven't even thought of. I don't think China is going to have to coerce many countries to change their view on this because over eight years in the 1980s, the Antarctic Treaty consultative parties were negotiating to explore and exploit Antarctic mineral resources. That was another agreement that was signed. It was called CRAMRA and it was only not put into place because Australia and France refused to ratify it. And that was a last-minute decision by your Keating government. And then the French government was very influenced by Greenpeace and uh, Jacques Cousteau from an environmental point of view. So we have already had an international agreement where all the parties, including Australia and New Zealand and the United States and everybody else who was in the treaty at the time, agreed that, yes, Antarctic mineral resources could be explored and exploited. And then they had a whole set of environmental protocols on that. And then the Madrid Protocols, basically the environmental protocols of Cranmer. 
So Chinese sources who write about the situation, who give policy advice to the Chinese government, argue that Cranra is already there. It just wasn't ratified. So it would be relatively easy after 2048 if countries wanted to raise the question again, look at the previous agreement and work with that. And 2048 is significant because you'd only need a two-thirds majority then, but you would need the agreement of all the countries who signed the Madrid Protocol. Looking at what was going on in the 1980s, I don't think that that's impossible. That mid-century, depending on global oil and gas reserves, depending on whether we've worked out a way to use renewables better, and looking at the individual energy situation of each country, what the collective view will be at that time. Publicly, the Chinese government remains committed to the Madrid Protocol. But Anne-Marie Brady, who's fluent in Mandarin, argues the Communist Party's official diplomatic rhetoric on the issue differs markedly from its domestic internal communications. The Chinese scholars whose work I draw on for my book, China as a Polar Great Power, and policy analysts in China who look at Antarctic issues, their view is that the current situation with regard to banning exploration and exploitation of Antarctic mineral resources is a matter of time before the current legal situation will change. So the thing is about the way that China talks about its policies is a two-track level to it. There's the external discourse and then there's the internal discourse within Chinese language and then within that is the different levels of secrecy as well. So you wouldn't know what China's full policy is without the kind of study that I did in China as a polar great power. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. The Antarctic Treaty System has many detractors, but the Sydney Democracy Network's John Keane says that for all its faults, it's also proven remarkably effective over the decades. Clumsy it is. It's a kaleidoscope of institutions. Roughly, the Antarctic Treaty System includes 53 states that are parties to the treaty system. There is a whole clutch of institutions that partly overlap with unpronounceable acronyms. If you think the European Union has a monopoly on acronyms, I think the Antarctic Treaty System clearly trumps the EU. You know, there are bodies like Camelot, established in the early 1980s to conserve marine life. There is a body called SCAR, which is a scientific committee for negotiating and administering research. There is um, a body called ASOC, the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, that is an NGO body. It's a coalition of NGOs. There are many different legal mechanisms that this treaty system comes clothed in. And even more complicated, the treaty system trades in several different types of of law, you know, decisions that are binding among the core parties to the treaty system. There are resolutions that are hortatory. They, you know, are recommendations. And then there are measures that are legally binding when agreed. When you put all this together, you have a multi-layered, polycentric governing system whose function is, in effect, to set aside that sovereignty principle. I mean, in a way, 
curiously, despite their clumsiness, effective in tabling problems and in resolving problems. And we have to understand that the really important driver of this Antarctic treaty system were scientists. A coalition of scientists who, in the mid to late 50s, insisted on the principle that this continent should not be the victim of commercial exploitation. It should not be territory where armies were located, but that it actually should be a patch of the earth preserved in order to conduct scientific research. In your new book, Power and Humility, you argue that Antarctica is significant for how we should think or we could think about power and territory and democracy. In what way? The really fundamental importance of Antarctica is the way that the building of these governing institutions and the role of scientists, citizen scientists, has affected a kind of Copernican revolution in the way that we think about these very fragile biomes on the continent. We have to understand that the history of this. At the beginning, if you look at the race between Scott and Amundsen in the early years of the 20th century, you see that there was a whole mentality of conquering Antarctica. What has happened in the course of a century is a whole 180 degree shift where the institutions of the Antarctic Treaty system are, as I see it, they're, they're ways of enabling the representation of the biosphere in human affairs. To put it simply, votes have been extended to the biomes of this continent so that the very understanding of power, of human power, has changed. We are being forced to recognize that we are not masters and possessors of our planet, that we are entangled in the biomes in which we dwell. We depend upon their resilience for our own resilience. And in this way, I think, the history of the human conquest of Antarctica is a history of learning humility. The treaty system is a clutch of power-checking institutions that extend the right of representation to biomes into human affairs. So it's an example for the rest of the world, but we do live, don't we, in times that are increasingly or seem to be increasingly nationalistic and increasingly competitive with regard to international relations. Is it a strong enough example to actually influence countries into the future? Well, this is one of the great political questions facing the treaty system. And I would say the evidence is at the moment rather contradictory. And of course, we don't know by definition what is going to happen in the future. There is certainly a lot of inner resilience to this polycentric governing system called the treaty system. And it withstood, for example, war in the Malvinas, which might have been expected to cause a great breakup of the treaty system, say between Britain and Argentina. That didn't happen. And more recently, we've had a breakthrough 
in the declaration of a marine protected area in the Ross Sea. This is a 35-year arrangement designed to protect the living species in that great patch of sea, which is at least a million square kilometers. So, you know, the treaty system looks and functions in robust ways, but scientists and other experts are warning that this treaty system can be broken. It can be broken, for example, by the undermining of all the treaty system arrangements by biospheric degradation. There is, as well, politically speaking, a lot of manoeuvring that is going on. Australia is certainly part of this, you know, asserting de facto territorial claims, even though Article 4 of the treaty system prevents this. And, and certainly powers like Russia and China are actively involved in trying, as it were, to colonize this treaty system. So those political moves are also a great source of instability for this uh, treaty system. I think, to be honest, we've got three sort of pressures that need to be managed. I think one is the commodification of Antarctica. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges. So how do you manage a continent that has become ever more commodified, financialized through activities like tourism, biological prospecting, fishing? So I think that's one pressure. Parties want to make money out of Antarctica. Number two, the Antarctic Treaty system has always been about governance. And the underlying principle of the governance has been that scientific cooperation will form the linchpin of that particular governance system. I think the difficulty we have is, is that the legitimacy of science is also now under threat. So it's tricky when you have a governance system that is based on the sanctity of science. And I think thirdly, what we've alluded to earlier, is that if you've got newer players making their presence ever more felt, then there's a danger that actually these newer players, and China, of course, would be the big example, they might not feel quite the same loyalty to the sort of 20th century traditions that have governed the Antarctic Treaty system. And of course, it makes it easier to take that attitude when you realise also that as Antarctica becomes more and more globalised, it means that the reach of the Antarctic Treaty system perhaps weakens as we realise that there are lots of other competing interests, legal regimes, broader geopolitics that makes the Antarctic feel less exceptional, less special, less isolated. So I think all of these things are going to make the business of Antarctic geopolitics more interesting, not less. Hobart, capital of Australia's island state of Tasmania. This small, vibrant city has been the last stop for Australian and international Antarctic adventurers and researchers for over a century. Hobart is one of five cities widely recognised as gateways to the Antarctic. There's also Christchurch in New Zealand, Punta Arenas in Chile, Cape Town in South Africa and Argentina's Ushuaia. Professor Paul James at Western Sydney University believes those five will have an increasingly important role. 
He's part of a research project focused on strengthening their capacities. The shift is quite profound and the cities are going through it at the moment. Some cities much more thoroughly than others and our experience is that Hobart and Christchurch and Punta Arenas are leading the way in this. They're starting to think of themselves as custodial, relational to Antarctica. So not just economic return, but also what is our cultural relationship to Antarctica? How do we think about its heritage and its past and its history? What is our ecological relationship to Antarctica? How do we think about how we protect Antarctica from the movement of invasive species or from pollution or from climate change? So they're big, massive ideas about a global commons. Uh, tell us a, a bit more about this research project, Antarctic Cities and the Global Commons. What does it involve and, uh, again, what do you hope to achieve by it? It involves massive cooperation across the three main cities, but also the other two cities in Cape Town and Ushuaia. We go into those cities, we work very closely with the city council, municipalities, and with the Antarctic agencies in those cities. We work with the youth communities and what we're doing is setting up, firstly, a sustainability assessment process for working out how those cities themselves see their own sustainability, not just ecological, also cultural, political and economic. Then we're setting up a connectivity index that shows really how cities connect to Antarctica, and that includes cities as far away as Shanghai or, or Goa in India. But lots of cities relate to Antarctica, but these are the five big cities, the five main ones with relationships, and we're trying to show what indeed that relationship is, including the movement of people, the movement of tourists, the movement of species, the, the ways in which whales or seals or other species are moving across that part of the Southern Ocean. And then we're trying to then uh, shift a culture within those cities, and the mayors are now using the language of themselves being custodial cities, and that kind of view sets up a, an idea idea that school children, youth and also other people in the city can think differently about Antarctica. Is there much cooperation at the moment between the five cities? They signed an agreement about five years ago to cooperate, but then nothing much has happened out of that agreement. And now, because the teams are working together, they're now cooperating quite strongly. So, in a way, they run separate gateway relationships to Antarctica. They run their own national programs into Antarctica. But at the same time, they're now starting to think much bigger about what Antarctica means for them as cities. What about the response from the big players, from China, the United States, even Russia? What's in it for them to actually recognise these five cities as being influential? The United States, for example, runs its program through Christchurch. Its national program is supported and it's both a defence and an inquiry program. There is... A difficult situation, that ambiguity that I'm pointing to, means they have to maintain their legitimacy in treating Antarctica as a global commons while still holding on to a national claim for a possible territorial control. So if they can work closely with one of the cities, which is the gateway cities, it's to their great advantage. And other cities and countries are the same. So China, for example, which is a major player in Antarctica and putting more and more money in, is trying to 
partly bypass those five gateway cities, but they remain still central to its infrastructure connection to Antarctica. So, in effect, they are negotiating not just with the Australian government, but also with the city of Hobart. They're negotiating with other cities around the world where they do it on a different kind of basis than a nation-to-nation negotiation process. And it makes for a potentially very creative complexity. And in that complexity, I think we can save the continent. We can actually see it as a continuing global commons in which we have a trustee relationship to rather than simply an exploitative one. In a way, you can see that Antarctica, in all of its exceptionalism, is a kind of bellwether of some bigger global trends of the 21st century. So that what happens in Antarctica is of great consequence for the rest of the planet and may well foretell the fate of our planet. Professor John Keane from the University of Sydney, bringing this the first of our 2019 series to a close. There are links to all of our guests and their work on the Future Tense website. Thanks to co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers. <laughs>